You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So this is part three of a series of conversations. I think this will be the last one on the question, are humans animals? And we've been exploring this year series of conversations on questions that our oikos is asking and we're going to start by just briefly reviewing the christian worldview on these matters um, to to just make sure we all have level ground here of what we believe as historic christians on the question of our humans animals and our focus verse this year has been genesis chapter one so god created humans in his own image in the image of god god created them male and female he created them and we've been exploring the many different facets of the doctrine of the image of god and so many of the cultural conversations that um, we're having in our country right now about race about gender equality about evolution about origins about animal rights all of these things have a connection to the image of God. And so we've been talking about this to try to help equip and train us in our conversations with members of our 8 to 15. And the most basic way of saying the Christian worldview on this issue is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. That means that we have value and worth simply because we're human, because we're created in the image of God. And we've been saying in this shorter series on the question of humans, are humans animals, that there is some kind of unbridgeable gap between humans and animals, that we are fundamentally different, but also the same in some ways, but fundamentally different in one particular way, and that is that we are created in God's image. So uh, maybe we could start this morning by turning to Genesis chapter 2, if that's all right with you. Because we've been talking about the image of God. But there's another way that scripture puts this that I don't know if I've highlighted in a while. And I wanted to make sure to do that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Okay? Now I want you to compare this with verse number 19, a little later in chapter 2. It says, now the Lord God had formed out of what? The ground. Very similar word there, to the dust. All of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Now what do we see is similar between verse 7 and verse 19? They're both created from the dust of the ground. They're both created from the ground. They come from the same place. God, another similarity we see is that God intervenes. He forms them. They don't seem to come from lower life forms. He's intervening. He's forming. This word forming is a word like a craftsman. He builds it. So we don't have a picture here of more advanced life forms coming from lower life forms, okay? But what's a key difference between these two verses in their descriptions? He breathed life into the man, and the man became a living being. But we don't ever have this description of what God does to the animals. He doesn't give his own breath to the animals. 
So based on this description, we would ought to expect, I think, similarities between humans and animals. Both are created from the dust of the ground. Both are, we might say, created from the same thing. We might even say scientifically, we're all created from DNA. We all have that in common, right? So we would expect some similarities, but we'd also expect important differences. Humans alone are created in the image of God. Humans alone have been given the breath of God. Are you with me? If we were to compare with Genesis chapter 1, it calls certain higher animals nephesh animals or soulish animals. We went over that way back in September. But that, so it seems that the Bible hints at there are different levels of animals. There are those that are purely physical, like a cockroach and a lizard are purely physical animals. And there's other more advanced animals that are more soulish, right? We have relationships with them. They, can, they seem to have mind, will, and emotions, right? But then only humans are created in the image of God. So we need to think in a little more sophisticated way about our relationship with the creation. And there's some details there in the text for us to notice together. So I want us to see that there, in what we're saying here in the question of are humans animals? Well, if we're saying that we're all kind of created beings, I guess that could be the answer to that could be yes. But there is this unbridgeable gap between us and what are merely soulish or nephesh animals that we have the image of God. And this is one of the most foundational aspects of the Christian worldview. And it is cultured, it is culture disturbing. It is a cultural disruption. We talked about that way last fall, if you remember about the issue of human trafficking. The reason we put value on the lives of of all human beings and we think it's wrong to sell them into slavery is because all humans have inherent dignity value and worth they're not just there for pleasure they're not there to be used and expended and this is a culturally disruptive message in some contexts okay so now we're going to transition to the the worldview of our culture of if you have somebody in your oikos that's part of the emerging generation or you have an unsafe friend or you might have even a very liberal Christian friend. This would be more of the worldview that they are coming from. And we've had this picture a few times, and I just think it's a great summary of our culture's view, is that there's not much difference between us and gorillas. That's kind of our cultural view. So the question we want to consider today is, what difference does all of this make if we believe in unguided natural process evolution? What is the long-term outcome of this belief in the broader culture? These are the two questions I want us to consider today. Is more of this question from a worldview standpoint. So I, I first, uh, you know me, I'm always trying to be very careful and I, I don't want to demonize anyone who's a scientist, I don't, anyone who might watch this or anyone who's in this room, my intent is not to demonize scientists. I think being a scientist is a noble profession. I make a living with scientists. I make a living running a youth mentoring program to encourage young people to go into science. So everyone, are we clear that like I am a stand for science, okay? So I am not in any way trying to disparage mainstream scientists or their ability to discover truth or come up with accurate results about the natural world, okay? 
So what I'm going to talk about today is simply teasing out some of the worldview implications of a belief in unguided natural process evolution. Are we clear about that? So, and that's not all science. There's plenty of disciplines in science that have nothing whatsoever to do with evolution. The law of gravity, chemistry, anatomy. These are all things that can be studied in and of themselves and have nothing whatsoever to do with questions about evolution. We can even study questions about animals and their origins, and it doesn't necessarily get into questions about evolution. What I am talking about simply is evolution as a worldview, okay? So that's a very important distinction to make. Christians are very sloppy a lot of times in how they talk about this with their unsafe friends, and they... They make accusations. Well, if you're a scientist, you must be an evolutionist. That means you're anti-God. And scientists do the same thing to us. They say, well, you're a Christian. You're anti-science. And so we don't want them to misunderstand our position, but we also want to treat them as we want to be treated. We don't want to misunderstand their position. Okay? So I want to give that, that word of, of caution that evolution and science are not the same thing. Okay. So let's go back to Romans chapter 1 where we ended last time. We're going to start at verse 18 and we're just going to go through this really quickly. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You might want to consider circling the word plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. You might want to circle that words clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, circle the word knew, they knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor they gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, Paul is laying out here the fundamentals of a shift from a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview to what we call an atheistic worldview. And he's explaining how this happens. He's saying God has left revelation, what we call general revelation, is creation, for all humans in all times and all places to know something about the creator. They can know he exists, his eternal power, his divine nature. But even though they have been given this very plain revelation and has been clearly seen and they know God, according to verse 21, they did not glorify him as God. They did not worship him as God. And so then what do they do by the end of verse 23 is they exchange the true God for what? Yeah, their own religion. So if you don't have the creator, if you don't know Jesus as creator and savior, you have your own religion that you have made. You, and I think that all non-Christian religions, everything that's out of that circle is a counterfeit religion. It is a man-made religion. It is an alternative worship system. It is another attempt to try to get to the true God, okay? So if we think about this in a worldview standpoint, um, here's kind of two 
possibilities and we're thinking about evolution. I'm going to talk today about this worldview right here, atheistic evolution, that animals evolved through unguided natural processes over time, and humans are the result of that, okay? There's no direction, no purpose, and no moral status or moral implications. So this is atheistic evolution. Now, I want to tell you, and we're not going to go into this, but I just want to make it clear that there are Christians who believe that God used evolution as a mechanism to create. And if you ever want to talk about that, we can have another class about that. I'm not talking about theistic evolution. I'm not talking about Christians who believe that God used evolution as a mechanism to create. I think that view has its own problems, but I'm not talking about that today. I'm only talking about atheistic evolution, okay? Are we clear about that? All right. Someday if we have a ask me anything and if you want to, if that's burning in your heart, you can ask me and then we'll talk about that. All right. Atheistic evolution as a worldview. Life is the result of random, undirected processes. So there's no spirit realm. There's no angels. There's no God. There's no life after death. There's no judgment. And I would also say there's no moral laws. Because that, I think, is part of the spirit realm. We've talked about that before. That morality is part of what I call the invisible furniture of the universe. Moral laws exist in the mind of God. In the same place as mathematics and other invisible parts of the universe. There's no spirit realm, though, if you're an atheistic evolutionist. No objective moral standards. Or the other alternative is that evolution is the moral standard. It's the survival of the fittest progress. That's the moral standard. So that's usually the two moral options if you're an atheistic evolutionist. Either there's no moral standards, which leads to just sort of nihilism where anything goes, it's just your pleasure, and that's how you make moral choices, or it's survival of the fittest. It's progress. All right, so let's continue in Romans chapter 1. So so far we've set it up. God has revealed himself as creator. Humans have rejected him. They have invented their own, their own religion. Okay, let's pick up in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires to, of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies for one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Therefore, or we'll stop there. Okay, so what's the next step? You invent your own religion, then you what? Invent your own morality, Right? That's the next step. So if you reject God, then you invent your own religion, then you invent your own morality. All right? So you see how all these things go back to the creation. See, what we believe about creation actually really matters. So many of the conversations we're having in our culture go right back to Genesis. And this is not just a situation of uh, something for philosophers, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. These are the cultural conversations that our young people are having and that we need to be having with them. 
because this is the dominant view of our culture, is atheistic evolution. If you want to know what is influencing the, the, the media, what is coming through in the movies that we watch, in the television shows that we entertain ourselves with, the most, the most interesting character in almost every TV show is an atheist. They're, they're viewed as in our culture increasingly as, as just interesting and thoughtful. And, you know, there, there's, yeah, it, it's, it, they're, they're humorous or they're, but there is, it's that this, this is the worldview of our culture. And so we need to understand what this is and then how it contrasts with what we're saying as Christians. So if atheistic evolution is true, then what are the moral consequences of that? That's what I want us to consider today. That if it's true that we are the result of unguided natural processes, then what is the moral consequence of that? Atheistic evolution as the moral standard. This is tied to the ideology of progress. This was big at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, beginning of the 1900s. Everything was about progress, the Industrial Revolution. This was seen as being the natural outworking of Darwinian evolution and survival of the fittest. There is a very real sense in which the Industrial Revolution was the natural outgrowth of a philosophical idea of Darwinism. And that would certainly be another way of, of seeing it. I think that in the context, though, of our culture, it was seen as progress was the greatest good, not necessarily discovery. And what you're talking about is more like curiosity and discovery, which I have talked previously. I do think that is part of what it means to be created in the image of God, is curiosity and discovery. So it was good for... Yeah, being creative, yeah. It was good for mankind to, to invent this stuff. I think that, and that would be... I mean, that's true. So it is, okay, here's, here's like the, the short version of my view of technology. Um, technology, most technologies are morally neutral. But, it, but you have to have a moral code in order to use the technology in a moral way. So if I have a knife, but I'm a doctor, a knife in the hand of a doctor is a, is a technology for good, right? If a knife in the hand of an, a, a, a person of evil, with an evil heart is something to be feared, right? So most technologies are morally neutral. But how you use them is not necessarily morally neutral. And how we use technologies can often actually um, harm our humanity. So, well, I'm getting way off now. So let's look at, uh, let's think for a second about the invention of the stethoscope. Okay, very, very uh, innocuous invention, a stethoscope, right? We all know what a stethoscope is, right? You go to the doctor, he listens to your heart. Okay, so what did doctors do before they had a stethoscope? They didn't have a technology to listen to their heart. Put your ear, right put, put your ear there and that ask you some questions, some diagnostic questions. How are you feeling? What happens when you do this, right? But then if I have a technology where I can just listen to the heart, do I even really need to talk to the patient that much? I have the technology, right? How does that harm our humanity, potentially? Well, it harms my relationship with my doctor. 
He doesn't know the full picture. There's a lot of context to my life. But now he thinks he can just use this stethoscope, this piece of technology, and that's going to bypass the relationship. And so that's what I mean by sometimes an even innocuous technology harms our humanity because it harms our connection. I'm going to talk more about this in a few weeks. I don't want to get too off on this because I'm going to do a lesson about social media and how I think that, that mobile devices are actually harming our humanity. And so I don't, I, want to get, I don't want to get off on that, but that's all stuff I thought about like 25 years ago, and I thought about doing my PhD on, on a Christian view of technology, and I give a lot of thought to that. So I'll go into that later. But anyways, so atheism, atheistic evolution is a moral standard tied to the ideology of progress. So the, the key questions in, in this idea of morality is uh, evolution leads to progress. Progress is good. Then evolution is the source and cause of good things. So what can we do as a society to make sure that things improve? Ethics itself is the result of an evolutionary progress. We even see this in the church in more liberal streams of Christianity. Shouldn't our doctrines evolve over time? as we understand more about the human condition. Last May and June, we did a whole series on progressive Christianity as it pertains to the questions related to homosexuality. When progressive streams of Christianity, they're telling us that our doctrines need to evolve with the culture because as we're progressing toward greater enlightenment, our doctrines also need to make the same trajectory of progress. Progress is the highest good, are you with me? In, in this system. This is how they think. So what is good? How do we determine what is good in an atheistic system? Pursuing personal interests is what's good. We call this moral relativism versus pursuing the interests of the group, which is what we call altruism. Now, people in my parents' generation were raised to be more altruistic. The greatest generation, as it's called in World War II, fought in the war because they saw an altruistic greater good for laying down their individual lives to preserve the greater good of democracy and freedom and the freedom of the Jewish people, right? That's altruism. Since the 60s, we have been shifting as a culture to one of moral relativism. I make choices based on what's right for me as an individual. I don't think it's any coincidence that divorce rates have started skyrocketing since the 60s. Because if, I'm gonna, if my highest good is I make choices for me, right, then I'm going to make choices that pursue my personal happiness and what I think makes my life more pleasurable, more safe, and less complicated. Are you with me? Yeah. So this is how we as a society think. Now, I'm going to give an example here of vaccinations. If I'm an altruist, I believe vaccinations are a good for the greater good of the people. There's vulnerable people in my, my society. There's people who are highly susceptible to getting the measles. They have compromised immune systems. And part of my duty to love my neighbor as myself is that I go get a measles vaccination 
so that I don't inadvertently infect my neighbor. That's an altruistic way of looking at vaccinations. A, a, an, a, a model where it's based for what's in the best of interest of me is I don't like vaccinations. I don't like going to get stuck by needles. I think that I have issues with this and, you know, and, you know, it's more of a, my private personal decision. Okay. So even something so innocuous as a vaccination, what I'm trying to get you to see is that we, we have these paradigms in our mind all the time. Some decisions we make altruistically, some decisions we make because it's in our personal interest. We don't often stop to reflect, why am I making this decision? And is the decision I'm making firmly rooted and grounded in my worldview as a Christian? Okay, so uh, determinism is another aspect of atheistic evolution. Determinism says that all of my moral choices are already determined. Genetics. This is a growing view in our culture. For example, we currently are having cultural conversations about whether or not there's an addiction gene. Maybe the reason I'm a serial rapist, there might be a rape gene. That's been a, 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 a cultural conversation in medical literature. Is there a rape gene? Is that genetic? Okay, is there a gay gene? Is there a selfish gene? Something, the reason I'm such a narcissist is that I have a, a narcissist gene, right? Now, if I'm an atheistic evolutionist and my genes determine my morality, what is good in that system? How do you determine what's good? Well, being true to myself. Everything would be good based on you, you know, your personal genes might be different than your wife. Your genes might be telling you. Well, there's so much conflict where everybody thinks everything's good. Exactly. So what if you have a gene of polygamy and your wife has the gene yeah. of monogamy and she says, and you're in conflict with each other. You say, I can't help it. It's genetic. I can't help it. My father was a philanderer. I'm a philanderer. Our son will probably be a philanderer. It's genetic. I can't help it. It's just the way it is, right? So what does this paradigm do to what's good? How do we know what good is? Well, good is, if good is personal relativism, it's just me acting out of my genetics, my, what's determined, my family history, what seems personally meaningful to me. Do you see how our culture is right there? We have no responsibility for change. We're not even really sure we believe in change anymore. I'm just being myself. That puts, I think, the evolutionists in a bit of a conundrum. How are we going toward progress if we haven't yet weeded out the, the rape gene as a culture? You know, that's, that's a legitimate question, I think. Now, there's this rise of a new area of science called epigenetics. And it uh, doesn't really make the news, but this is the idea that genetics is actually not deterministic. It's actually quite flexible and that you can actually change your genes through your behavior. And so the question is, is do your genes determine your behavior or do your, does your behavior determine your genetics? And there is a rising body of evidence 
that you can actually change your genetic structure when you change your behaviors. So even if you have an, a, a genetic propensity toward obesity, if you take steps to eat right and to exercise, you could actually change your genetic structure so that that genetic propensity toward obesity will be eradicated from your, from your genomic structure. So the rise of epigenetics is a bit of a problem for this idea of the, of the rape gene, the gay gene, and what have you. To me, that's actually a support for the Christian worldview that personal responsibility is a thing and that we, ought, we can change and modify our behaviors over time. And we would say, sure, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can change, a, I've come a long ways. Yeah, I can do all things, right? But do you see how our worldview puts us in, in conflict with our cultural worldview? Okay, so we're going to listen now to my friend, Dr. Fuzrana, and listen to the rest of the interview that we've been watching. And he's going to kind of tease this out a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about it from a scientific point of view. Now, when we think about um, the conversation from an evolutionary point of view, you know, I'm just wondering... What are some of the implications that you see if evolution is true? Um, how does that impact our dignity as humans? Yeah. You know, from a scientific, as a scientist, I know you've reflected on this because if evolution, the evolutionary scenario is true, it does have certain moral implications. And sure. you and I have had a lot of conversations about how the image of God forms the, the foundation for concepts like social justice. Yeah. But if evolution is true, what does that do to human dignity? Yeah. And as we as we unpack the, this, I want to make a point very, very strongly, is that there are many people that are atheists that would be deeply entrenched in the evolutionary paradigm that would still take a position in which they, they view humanity as having worth and dignity. Yes. Uh, so they, it, but I think if you play out the logical implications of embracing an evolutionary view of humanity, the logic, logical implications are that we're not any different than any other creature, that we have no greater or lesser status than any other creature on the planet. And if that's the case, then why would we grant human beings in, inherent worth and value any more so than we would, you know, uh, the sand dart or any other species that may be on the cusp of going extinct? Why do we suddenly give human beings greater dignity and worth? So I think you, you undermine the, the basis for, for justice, for uh, uh, human flourishing, you know, uh, by taking an evolutionary view of humanity if you cash out the implications. Now, some ethicists who are of a atheistic evolutionary point of view, like Peter Sanger, he actually teases that out to the end. Of, yes. To say that humans are more valuable than animals is really just speciesism. It's like racism. Yes. But for saying, well, there's no reason to say humans are more valuable than animals if we're all just byproducts of evolution. And that takes him to some weird and interesting ethical places. It sure does. But he's... Um, a little bit more unusual. There are many secular humanists right. who would say, no, humans still are valuable even though we don't believe in God. So they try right. to have good without God, yes. if you will. Exactly right. And you know, and, and your point about Peter Singer is a really good point. And I would encourage people to read a little bit 
about what Singer says because his view is that what gives people or gives an, an organism, an animal, if you will, and he's thinking of human beings as animals, uh, what gives them personhood and therefore rights would be sentience, self-awareness. And so he argues that whales yeah. and dolphins have have a, a greater value, inherent value, than a human infant up to the age of about two, because they don't human infants up to that age don't have quote unquote genuine self-awareness or sentience. You know, um, uh, he's also you know a pro pro vegetarian because of that view where there these creatures have sentience, and so we're causing pain and suffering when we you know farm animals and things like that for for our benefit. He even argues that people with disabilities yes. uh, should be euthanized because they're suffering, and, and you know. And so he's assuming that pain and suffering is the criteria for the good life, or absence of pain and suffering, I should say, is the criteria for a good life. So there's, a, I mean, you could spend several episodes just yeah. unpacking all that. But but what I like about Peter Singer is this: he's actually taking the implications of the, of the evolutionary paradigm to their logical, ethical extensions. He's trying to be consistent about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I, I, I wish I could lay claim to this, but I heard somebody recently say that, that secularism is really a, is a distortion of Christian theology. Yes. That humanism is a distortion of Christian theology where it's anchored in a Christian worldview but then you're rejecting God, you're rejecting human exceptionalism, but yet there's still this sense that humans have value and worth. It's just that we want to cash out that value and worth in ways that are convenient for us as opposed to ways that actually honor human life. The way I say it is that secular humanism kind of hijacks the Christian worldview yeah. for humanity's dignity, but they, they, they do it in such a way to try to get rid of God out yeah. of the, the equation, but they still want to borrow from our worldview yeah. that, you know, certain things are wrong and certain yeah. things are more virtuous than other things. Yeah. And, but how they arrive there, how do you get to goodness without God, is is a very interesting yeah. dilemma and outcome if you of evolutionary the evolutionary construct when you look at it from a worldview standpoint. Yeah. But this is I think something important to keep in mind is that this is a this is common ground that we share with at least atheists that are secular humanists. Yes. That this is this is common ground and even people like Peter Singer are trying to come up with some kind of ethical system that is that is objective. Right, that is rational, you know, and you know, the, oftentimes these ethicists will look at Christianity as, as kind of a command ethic, where God just decrees things, so we we blindly follow God's decree. But I would actually disagree with that. I, I think God does give us commands on how we should treat other human beings, but those commands are logical entailments of the fact that human beings bear God's image, and therefore have inherent worth and value. So there's a, a, an objective, that, that Christian ethics are objective, they're not just simply arbitrary commands, and there's an underlying rationale that ultimately is embedded in the fact that we bear God's image and therefore we have value beyond anything that exists on this planet, and therefore we treat other people 
uh, not the way we want to be treated, but the way that God deserves to be treated. That when we are helping the poor, when we are helping the marginalized, we're actually helping, we're, we're doing that to God. That's how we are treating yes. God himself. Yeah, and, th and when I realized this a few years ago, to me suddenly social justice issues took on a completely different dimension. Because now social justice isn't something that I'm doing, or addressing social justice issues, or isn't something I'm doing to feel good about myself, or it's a good deed, but rather it's an act of worship. That is just as much an act of worship as spending time in prayer, or uh, singing songs to God on a Sunday morning. It, it's, it's a genuine act of worship because I'm, in a practical way, loving God by loving other human beings. Very cool. Well... Thanks for talking to oh, us. This, this has been great. I can talk about this stuff forever <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not just something that I, I love and I'm interested in. It's something that I think is so absolutely important. Yeah. I mean, it's the heart and the soul of, of the Christian faith. Yeah, very good. And again, here, let's uh, pull out who was Adam here right off the shelf. We're going to recommend Dr. Rana's book, Just Updated. A uh, year or so ago? Yeah, 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 something like that. So really just such an amazing, uh, I think that this this might outlast both of us, the, <laughs> the valuable work that you've done in this. But if you want to know about human origins from a Christian point of view, who was Adam is yeah. really the, the, the place to go, I think. so. All right, let's read the rest of um, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And they invent ways of doing evil. That is just such a stark statement of the apostle. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Is that not a growing description of our culture? Yeah. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also what? Approve of those who practice them. This is, I think, a prophetic description of our time. And I'm trying to outline today how we got here. We rejected the creator. We began to invent our own religion. We invented our own morality. And now we are living out the long-term effects of that morality. What happens to a culture when we tell an entire generation that there is no objective moral standard, there is just survival of the fittest, there is simply whatever brings you personal satisfaction and personal happiness? Where do we end up as a culture? I think we're arriving there right now. So when we talk about a worldview, so humans are created in the image of God. That's our core belief. We talked about worldviews last year. You remember core beliefs? So our core belief that we've been talking about is that humans are created in the image of God. And then from this core belief, we have all of these related beliefs 
the dignity of the unborn, racial equality, loving our enemies. Remember, we spent a couple weeks on that. We're loving our political enemies, our religious enemies, things related to animal rights, gender equality. All of these things, dignity and work, all of these ideas are all connected to the image of God concept to us as Christians. But what happens when we get rid of our central belief? What if we substitute a belief that says humans are just merely a collection of molecules? We're just matter in motion. We're the result of unguided natural processes. We are no different than the animals. In fact, two-year-olds are less valuable than whales because two-year-olds have less self-awareness than whales do. Where do we end up as a culture when we adopt those kinds of beliefs? Well, why should we believe in gender equality? Why? What makes women equally value, as valuable as men if it's survival of the fittest? Men might be smarter. Men might be stronger. Men are in more positions of control in governments and systems. Who says that women have equal value? Humans and animals are of equal value. Why should I love my enemies? That doesn't bring me much personal satisfaction. There's no, there's no reason for altruism. There's no reason to lay down my life for the greater good. There's just my good. I don't care about my enemies. Why would I do that? If your molecules and my molecules, raw molecules, I'm under no obligation to treat you better than anybody else's molecules, because we're all molecules. Who cares? Greed might actually be a good in this system, because progress is the highest good. And my progress is the highest good for me. So in that system, greed might actually be a virtue. Are you with me? Do you see how beliefs are interconnected? And beliefs matter. Beliefs have consequences. Here's a tweet from just this week. I want to show you how relevant this class is. Richard Dawkins is a very famous British atheist. He's a vegetarian. He says, tissue culture, clean meat, already in 2018. I've been looking forward to this. And he links to a news article. What if human meat is grown? Could we overcome our taboo against cannibalism? This is an interesting test case for a consequentialist morality versus the yuck reaction of absolutism. You and I are the absolutists. We think that humans eating other humans is not morally okay. But these are the moral consequences of living in a culture where there is no objective outside moral standard. There is just progress. So his proposal is to grow meat in a lab, and this could help um, overcome problems with um, food shortages. So Dawkins thinks we're just a collection of carbon molecules. We're just matter in motion. We're the products of unguided natural chance. He rejects the concept of human exceptionalism or being created in the image of God that humans have any intrinsic value simply and merely because we are human. Christianity is, is what? Logical question on that. Why should we listen to those carbon molecules? Yes. 
What, why should I listen to your carbon molecules more than my carbon molecules? What makes your carbon molecules more morally correct than my carbon molecules? This is a big problem that you spiral down into when you adopt this worldview. Christianity is seen as being speciest. I talk about that in, in the clip because the, it's discrimination against animals. We ought to value whales more than we value human two-year-olds. If, if our standard is what gives us value is our self-awareness. See, what happens when you jettison the idea of being created in the image of God, you've got to find some other standard to go to. So what we read about in Romans 1, we've got to find some other thing to worship. We have to find a different moral standard because we as human beings, I think we've been created to want a moral standard. There's a yearning, there's a longing in us because we've been created in the image of God. We want a moral standard, but we don't want God's standard. So what do we do? We create our own standard. So Peter Singer says, okay, our moral standard for dignity and value is going to be sentience. This is what he proposes. Sentience, our self-awareness. Cannibalism, in our worldview, is immoral. Why is it immoral? It's because it denies human exceptionalism. It denies our unique dignity and the meaning of human life. And this is why, for example, we don't desecrate the dead. That people even have dignity in their death. This is why we bury the dead. We don't just defecate on dead people. That's an act of war. You can be prosecuted, even if you're in a war situation, of mistreatment of the dead because of human exceptionalism. This is like a universal ideal, but, but some are trying to jettison that. This is a great article. You can, I've included the um, link here. This was just one I thought, um, it's not a Christian article. It's from National Review. It's a more conservative um, news outlet, but I thought this was a great response to Dawkins' tweet. It says, the unique, equal, and inherent dignity of every human life is a core belief of Judeo-Christian moral philosophy and the foundation for the foundation principle of Western civilization. Indeed, every historical evil committed in the West, slavery, eugenics, eugenics is like killing people based on their race. That's what eugenics is. Jim Crow laws, the Holocaust, the Inquisition, you name it, all flowed directly from rejecting or regarding that principle of the equality and inherent dignity of every human life. That's the image of God, people. That's the scriptures. So if we're truly living out our beliefs in a consistent way as Christians, we value life. I hope that this study into what does it mean to be a human being has been helpful to you. Um, In the coming weeks, these are going to be our topics, I think. Always have that caveat. Um, Several weeks ago, we had a lot of questions about end-of-life considerations. My mother told me I needed to do a lesson on that, so I'm doing that. Um, uh, Mental disabilities, the dignity of the mentally disabled. We're going to talk about that. We're going to, I'm going to give a lesson on technology and social media and mobile devices. Um, I'm going to do something on art and creativity, I think, because this is also part of the image of God. And I have two children who are extremely artistic. 
And then I want to try to get uh, a message together on uh, this concept of transhumanism that's come up a few times in class. And talking about that is like the great next evolutionary frontier of how we're, it's, it's this idea of trying to live forever, of harnessing technology to be able to live forever. So this is the, this is the um, natural outcome of what we've talked about today, of atheistic evolution is the next great frontier is transhumanism. How can we really not need God at all and live forever? How can we partake of the tree of life and live forever? Okay, so this is sort of what's coming. Does this sound interesting? Is pe- are people going to show up? All right. So this is what our culture is talking about, and I want you to be equipped and trained to think more deeply about these issues. Father, we thank you for creating us, and we thank you for bringing us into a relationship with your son Jesus, both as our creator and our savior. We know that our culture is very confused about who they are, They have forgotten your truth. They have forgotten their true identity as being created in your image. Lord, help us to be signposts, to be reminders, to tell people of who they really are, that we would come into belief in the core of our being that the lies that our culture has come into agreement with are lies, so that we would not be deceived by them, but rather we would be proclaimers of your truth and your true identity through us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.